Hey there, thanks for coming. Before we get started, just a few reminders. You can sign up for text alerts from me, Big Mama. You'll get insider text before anyone else with invitations to be a guest on the podcast. New episode releases, secret merch drops. Just text the word JOIN to 332-244-6262. Remember, you have to be at least 13 years old to join the text list. Have you already left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? No? What are you waiting for? Five-star reviews, especially with a comment, help the podcast to be found by other people. So do it now. Like, right now. Okay? Now. Hey, we're on the search for podcast guests. If you're a student, seventh grade or higher, who has ever seen, I don't know, some sus, moist behavior on Roblox or Discord, because, hey, who hasn't? Let us know. If we use your story in an episode, you'll get some merch. And don't worry, we'll never, ever, ever, ever use your real name or any other detail which might reveal your identity, because we're not idiots. You can either leave a voicemail at 332-244-6262 or email a voice memo to guests at bigmamashousepodcast.com. Thanks. This episode of Big Mama's House Podcast has been brought to you ad-free by our fans. If you would like to learn more about supporting this podcast and this topic, visit www.patreon.com forward slash Big Mama's House. Hey, welcome back to Big Mama's House Podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you all for just a quick little favor. If you're enjoying the podcast, can you please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? It only takes a couple of clicks, and here's why. Almost every other podcast network uses Apple ratings, and your five-star review would make a huge difference to how we're ranked. You don't even have to use Apple Podcasts to leave a review. Thanks so much. Welcome back to Big Mama's House Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 9. Education during COVID. Is Zoom safe for kids in schools? If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you may have noticed that there was no episode released last week. I've recorded a short sort of behind-the-scenes video on why I skipped a week, plus an explanation and a big announcement of something I'm working on that I'm going to need your help with. Look for that in the Patreon channel in the next few days. From December 2019 to March 2020, when country after country and state after state began issuing stay-at-home orders, schools began to very quickly adapt. What other choice was there? Failure is not an option when children are involved. But to me, at the beginning, it felt like a real-world panicked version of the playground hide-and-seek countdown. 12, 11, 10, 9... Where the dreaded call, ready or not, here I come, always comes too quickly before we're ready. We weren't ready. We're still not ready. And there's no hint of Ali Ali oxen free in sight. As of Thursday, the 25th of June, 2020, the Centers for Disease Control reported 2,336,615 confirmed COVID cases in the U.S., which had been an increase of about 34,000 in that previous 24 hours. 
There were also a calculated 121,000 some odd total COVID deaths, which was an increase of 784 in that previous 24 hours. There seems to be no end in sight. Even the most conservative projections show that there will be a spike in cases during the regularly scheduled flu season, which means the fall, which coincides beautifully with that time-tested and true parental balm and savior, the annual back-to-school migration. Chances are we will not, on the first day of school, simply deposit our sweet babies onto a yellow school bus and immediately skip all the way home, as in years past. So you better start stocking up on tequila bottles now, slowly, if only to avoid the liquor store guy's stink eye when you order by the case. If COVID, like any other flu or respiratory illness, is easily transmitted by coughing, sneezing, and otherwise sharing airborne cooties, and the number of deaths is rising particularly in countries and U.S. states which have not locked down completely, then what's going to happen when we send children who are already, especially in elementary grades, cootie and snot machines into buildings and onto buses where the very air is thick with ick? We already know what happened in the 2019-2020 school year. That bizarro landscape of kind of in school, kind of not, sort of finishing classes, sort of coasting, hoping that graduations would happen as they always had, and they didn't, and wishing that life would go back to normal. It hasn't. But there's still some good news to be found amid the dark and dreary. Isn't there always? We've learned lessons about each other. Beyond the globally humanizing moments of grief and loss, we've also had the opportunity, if we chose to take it, to see the world outside of our own perspective, understanding that in less affluent communities, some children depend on their school-supplied breakfast and lunch as necessary for their survival. For some children, those school-supplied meals are the only ones they can confidently expect to receive each day. For other children, regardless of their socioeconomic level, the only emotional or mental health support they can hope to receive comes by way of their school buildings. And what about the children who live in homeless shelters or bounce around from place to place? They rely on their school building as their only consistent place in their lives. And the children who are lucky enough to not have to worry about regular meals, emotional support, and a bed upon which to lay their heads, they need human connection with each other, with their teachers. They need each other like we all do. Much has been said about thanking and honoring the healthcare providers who actively risk their lives for the rest of us. This wave of appreciation is deserved and in larger measure than we can even collectively acknowledge. And there could be no one left in doubt that K-12 schools and educators all over the world live to serve their students. When COVID hit, educators and schools did what they've always done. They figure it out. And we should take just a second to think about that. According to the United Nations, because of COVID, global school closures have impacted 191 countries and 1.5 billion students. So I'd like to take this space to add my own thank you and appreciation to the 3.7 million U.S. teachers who are just a small part of the total 90 million teachers worldwide. This group of educators, 90 million strong, have undertaken this current COVID challenge and addressed that challenge like teachers have done all through history. They just figure it out. Through world wars, air raid drills, famines, monsoons, hurricanes, school shootings, and just the average Tuesday... They just figure it out. Those schools which had already gone one-to-one, meaning that the school had already issued each child a device, were able to adapt the quickest. And is quickest ever synonymous with most effective? Not usually. 
I had a theater director in college who was fond of saying, motion gives the illusion of energy, meaning that the mere act of us moving around would elevate us in his eyes from what he expected us to be, lazy, talentless sloths. In this case of schools adapting quickly to COVID, we might edit that to say, speed gives the illusion of certainty. A quick decision, even a bad one, delivered with confidence, can just feel more reassuring than a slower, more thoughtful decision delivered with footnotes. And you know, the devil's in the footnotes. But regardless, in the very real and pressing need of a response, districts and counties and countries developed action plans, delivering curbside paper assignments to students without devices, food boxes to at-risk families, replacing those much-needed school-supplied meals. While replacing the stuff food, paper, assignments. Schools also needed to adapt to replace communication and connection. And in this well-intentioned, no questioning, well-intentioned move towards increasing connection between school staff and isolated students, mistakes were made. For a detailed view of these mistakes and how to avoid making them, please listen to episodes five and six. But here we are now, with the hard-won lessons learned from the 1920 COVID school year and in the summer before the next 2021 COVID next school year. All things being equal, we know that there will be another spike of COVID cases in the fall to match the normal annual spike in regular flu cases. Regardless of any other variables, we know that's going to happen. We're also collectively hoping to get back to some measure of normalcy, however unlikely that might be. Individual school districts are now scrambling to create the healthiest possible educational environment for their communities. In my opinion, the ideal, perfect, pie-in-the-sky school planning schedule for COVID education is unattainable. But if it existed, it should keep students safe, keep staff safe, maintain educational continuity, reinstate some level of routine, and not adversely impact working families. By that, I mean that the fall school schedule will allow people to go back to work if they need to. And I'm already saying ahead of time, there's no way that this can be done perfectly. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, for its part, has issued a good, better, best, or in this case, what I would call worst, okay, and ideal, guidelines for schools which only address the spread of COVID without addressing any educational or financial concerns. So the CDC's recommendations only apply to the health portion of the question. So here's what the CDC recommends for schools. And remember to check out the liner notes for links of all the sources used in this episode. Okay, so the ideal plan to go back to school, according to the CDC, what they're calling their, quote, lowest risk is that students and teachers engage in virtual only everything, classes, activities, events. So one, and this is me saying this, that means that kids will be home again all day, every day so much for not impacting working parents. Two, this also means that kids will be using their devices all day and will continue to be isolated physically from their friends, etc. If you have any doubt at all, if all day device use is a horrible idea, just listen to episode seven, which focuses on the direct impact that device time has on mental health. I worry actively for the mental health of children, especially who need to spend hours on a device. Okay, so that was the ideal plan. The ideal plan is everybody stays home. The okay plan, according to the CDC, what they're calling more risk, 
is small in-person classes, groups of students stay together and with the same teacher all day and groups of students do not mix. Students remain six feet apart from everybody else and do not share any materials. Okay, so one, and again, this is me saying this, keeping the same teacher all day is impossible at the middle school level and above since students change teachers by subject starting by around the sixth grade, at least in the U.S. Two, how are you going to keep kids fourth grade and under consistently six feet apart from each other or worse, keep them from touching stuff? Have you ever tried to keep a kid from touching stuff? Just the act of telling them to not touch stuff makes them touch stuff. Okay, three. This is the worst plan, according to the CDC, what they call highest risk. And I agree. This is what we would call going back to normal. Full-size, in-person classes, nobody's separated, all the kids are mixing, everybody shares materials. In other words, school is as we've always known it. And this is the biggest disaster of all, obviously. We can't go back to normal. We can't keep these kids at home all day and isolated on devices. So what's the answer? Well, as I said, there's no way to do this perfectly. Over the past month, I've had the same conversation with school superintendents and administrators, and the answer to the question of how is some combination of D all of the above. Students and districts have widely differing needs based on population density, socioeconomics, geography, distance, and culture. What's going to work in one place is not going to work at all in another place. But the one consistent message I've heard throughout all of these conversations is that schools really are trying to do the best they can for their students, and by extension, for the families of those students. But here's the thing. Ultimately, the final plan your school district or school designs will not satisfy every student or family-specific needs. That's an impossible expectation on a normal day without COVID. It kind of reminds me of watching HGTV. I mean, we watch House Hunters International. I watch compulsively because I'm a travel junkie and I don't get to travel enough. But it's always a couple whose list of demands is laughably stupid. They're in Fiji, in the capital, and the wife wants a three-bedroom penthouse in the city center while the husband wants a five-bedroom house in four acres of land with the view of the ocean. Oh, and by the way, they're also traveling with three dogs, six children, a couple of iguanas, and they have 100 bucks a month to spend. At which point, there's this deliciously cringy moment where the camera pans to the lovely Fijian realtor who looks like she wants to stab herself in the jugular with the plastic umbrella and this lady's drink, which she's sucking down through a straw. And I'm screaming at the TV, gulp your drink like a grown-up. So yeah, like that. We're going to have to compromise and let some stuff go. I think that's my point. But even so, I cannot imagine that there's any school anywhere which is going to decide to take option C, which is just go back to normal in the fall. That's madness. I mean, unless you're a school in the middle of nowhere with six students per grade, maybe you can swing it. If you are an educator considering just throwing open the doors because you feel pressure from your community or some outside group, I would urge you to remember why you first became an educator. I know it wasn't because of the millions you expected to earn in salary and bonuses, Far more likely that you wanted, at some point, genuinely wanted to make a difference in the lives of children. If you are feeling the pressure to go back to normal, hey, you know what? Maybe this is your moment. And we don't get many of these in life, so consider yourself lucky. You have the opportunity to show by your actions what you keep telling your kids, your students about integrity. Take this opportunity to stand up and put the lives of your staff and your students and their families before your own sense of self-preservation. I mean, if you work in education, you've probably been putting your students' needs before your own ease and your own comfort since jump. Personally, I don't see a single, even barely 
adequate solution for scheduling school next year, which doesn't include some device-based component. If there's no back to normal, and based on what we've seen in this past upside-down academic year, schools will probably be using technology to support some form of a part-at-home, part-at-school educational hybrid. Here's an example of how this would work. Students in Group A go to the school building physically for regular classes, let's say on Monday and Tuesday, while Group B stays at home and engages with those classes from home via a device. Then on Thursday and Friday, the groups swap. Here are just two of the challenges with this setup. The first is maintaining educational continuity between the groups. The presumption is that the students at home, Group B, will move ahead in the subject material at the same pace as the students who are physically at school group A. Well, if that isn't the case, if the kids at home fall behind for two days, then those teachers are going to be dancing a year-long three-step tango, two steps forward, one step back. Challenge number two with the half-half setup is student accountability, meaning that when kids are at home, They may be more likely to coast on schoolwork, are smart enough to hack the software, and might otherwise find loopholes to work less, because of course they will. And by the way, I'm working on several other episodes related to student accountability for parents in schools, so stay tuned for those. Given the likelihood that most schools will be using some version of this Group A, Group B hybrid setup, the next question is obvious. How will the students at home view the class lecture? or get extra help from the teacher, or work on a group project with other students, or watch a certain amazing internet safety speaker, not mentioning any names, during a virtual school assembly. How is that going to happen? It's bad enough this generation of young people is subjected to TikTok. We can't just take a pass on entire year's worth of education. And on top of the irrecoverable loss of effective educational time, tell them to stay home, and give them even more mind-numbing, twitching, and drooling device time? Dozens of global health, education, and other myriad lists of NGOs are extremely concerned about the inevitable drop in learning that's already taken place in the 1920 school year and will continue through the beginning of next year. In fact, UNESCO put together a list of distance learning solutions for schools and teachers, which includes specific apps, platforms, and plans which can be used by educators. It covers many languages and device types, so check the liner notes for the link. And a shout out to all of my listeners that are in Mexico and in Europe. I know I have some fans and listeners in Spain, so shout out to all of you guys. So what about Zoom? Last year, many schools and employers were using Zoom, which you, if you're a parent or even a teacher, may only have heard about because of COVID. Zoom is a software program which allows you to video conference with other people. The same concept as FaceTime, but higher tech and with more features. At its most basic, Zoom allows two or more people to video and or audio conference, and by the way, Zoom calls these meetings, with other people on the same screen and the same virtual location. In the most typical scenario, the host of the meeting will send out invitations to potential participants. Those participants can choose to attend the meeting by webcam or by dedicated phone number provided by Zoom. During the meeting, you can do loads of other things like share a presentation, share your screen, share files, record the video or audio, use text-based chat during the meeting, and too many other specific features to mention. In addition, Zoom is free to the casual user and it's super easy to use. I was able to Zoom with my 78-year-old Cuban mother and she doesn't even know how to read texts. So that's saying something. It's no wonder that Zoom has become so popular. To give you an example, here's how I personally use Zoom. 
When I'm going to record an interview with someone, once we've agreed on a day and time, I go to my Zoom dashboard. And by the way, I pay for the pro version. And I schedule the day and time of the interview. I enter the person's name and their email address. That scheduled interview appears automatically on my calendar with all of the joining instructions and the interview subject receives the same instructions in an email. When the day arrives, I just go to my calendar, click on the link, use the password provided by the system to secure the meeting. The person I'm interviewing does the same thing and meets me face-to-face in the meeting. I hit the record button to capture, in my case, just the audio from the meeting. That audio file then gets downloaded to my hard drive and is later incorporated into the interview portion of the episode, which you hear later. Honestly, it's a great product, and the process has been pretty seamless. So why, then, have I devoted an entire episode to the so-called safety of Zoom? Excellent question. But first, a little background on the company. Zoom Technologies, Inc. was started by Eric Yuan. Born and raised in China, while in college, Eric lived a 10-hour train ride from his girlfriend, who he later married. Since they couldn't see each other as often as they would have liked, he thought it would be cool if he could somehow see his love from far away, which I think is kind of sweet. Years later, in 1997, he emigrated from China to the U.S. and went to work in Silicon Valley. He worked his way up, and by 2011, he had worked his way into a VP position at the tech giant Cisco. He finally got around to formulating that old idea he had had and pitched development of a video conferencing platform for smartphones to his Cisco bosses, who promptly shot down the idea. So he left Cisco and developed Zoom on his own. Big mistake, Cisco. Zoom became a publicly traded company in April 2019, and within 12 months of the stock's IPO, the company was worth 35 b- b- billion with a B dollars. Their popular video conferencing tool is used by over 30,000 massive corporations like Walmart and Uber, as well as corporate fleas like me. And talk about your silver linings. From December 2019 to April 2020, and directly caused by the pandemic, Zoom's global usage increased 1,900%. You heard that correctly. Almost 2,000% higher usage between December 2019 and April 2020. And here's the best part of the story, in my opinion. The CEO, Eric Yuan, also seems to be, from what I've seen, a decent human being. He's not some douchey, self-defined demigod who constantly refers to his three commas. If you're a normal human being and you don't know what the heck that means, three commas means billionaire to slugs like you and me. His employees love him. He got a 99% employee approval rating on the workplace review site Glassdoor. His personal motto is work hard and stay humble. So great boss, decent human being. The product was born out of a love story. What could go wrong? Well, not even Eric Yuan could have anticipated that Zoom, his baby, would become as popular as it has and as quickly. No one anticipated that a COVID-type pandemic would ever happen. Well, except every global health organization, but that's a different topic. And whenever you have a massive amount of traffic and focus converge on a single point, There are bound to be unintended consequences and troublemakers. On top of which, the company made a few rookie mistakes, which look like they have since been rectified. You've probably heard about Zoom bombing. That's when internet trolls, aka any idiot with too much time in his hands, decides to enter a Zoom meeting and bombard the participants with porn and other unsavory and graphic content. Zoom bombing is bad enough disturbing, unexpected, and obnoxious when all the participants in the meeting are adults. Like the daily public Zoom meeting, which is hosted by The Verge reporter Casey Newton. 
Newton and his co-host Hunter Walk had sent out a post on Twitter inviting people to the daily call publicly with the Zoom link. After the meeting began, someone busted in and started sharing graphically sexual content. And each time Newton tossed out the troll, he kept coming back in under a new name and doing it again. They eventually just ended the call after it happened a few times in order to protect the participants, which included Newton's own mom and dad. And really, no one wants to watch porn with their parents. I mean, regardless of how old you are, that's just awkward. Disturbing? Yes. End of the world? Probably not. They were, after all, adults in the meeting. It's much more of a problem when the so-called meeting is really a group of students in a class, or meant to be in a class, or a school board meeting. A high school student from Connecticut was arrested in April after Zoom bombing several classes. And make no mistake, this is criminal behavior which can be prosecuted. That particular kid was charged with committing computer crimes in the fifth degree, conspiracy to commit a computer crime in the fifth degree, and breach of peace. Also in April, a teacher at a Catholic school where I presented was in the middle of an eighth grade lesson via Zoom, live with students present, when a Zoom bomber shared video porn with the class. They were able to figure out that the perpetrator got access to a student password in order to enter the meeting. It's happening at the college level, too. Unwanted intruders Zoom bombed college class meetings at Arizona State and USC with vulgar, racist, misogynistic language plus horribly graphic sexual content. The USC professor was so upset by the entire experience that he actually created a web page with guidelines for educators on how to avoid a Zoom bomb. And I've listed this in the liner notes with all the other sources. At an Ohio school board's live Zoom meeting, attended live by 153 staff members, parents, and children, a Zoom bomber shared 15 seconds of child pornography before the call was abruptly ended. Then there were the Tampa area PTA meeting in Florida and the Pickens County, Alabama school board meeting, which were both subjected to vicious racist rants and again, porn by Zoom bombers. A New York Times piece from April 2020 called As Zoom Use Source, So Does Its Abuse by Harassers by Taylor Lorenz and Davey Alba revealed that some of these Zoom bombers have worked in teams. They've actually coordinated their activities via social media platforms like Instagram and Twitter and on message boards like 4chan. These trolls will find, gather, and share meeting links and passwords and then coordinate their attacks. Awesome. So I think you get the point. Zoom bombing happens. But is it just a flaw in Zoom software? Like, where is this coming from? No, not really. There were always settings available to prevent this from happening. Uh, Users weren't using them or they were mistakenly thinking they didn't need them. But since then, the company has made it easier to prevent any of these situations from happening, but it still depends on users ticking the correct settings in the software and not being stupid enough to share the login credentials in a public space. We'll talk about all of these settings near the end of the episode. Well, that covers the Zoom bombing. What about the hacking? Around the end of March, a few software developers noticed some glaring holes in Zoom's app and installer. One vulnerability found in July 2019, would make it easier for a hacker to hijack the webcam on your computer remotely. And around nine months before that, a programmer discovered yet another Zoom vulnerability, which could allow hackers to turn someone else's computer into a server. But before you take your computer and drown it in a nice warm bubble bath, let's just get one thing clear. Hackers are going to hack. I mean, what I mean by this is that all tech companies have issues with hackers. This isn't specific to Zoom. And all tech companies work consistently on writing updates to their software to fix those holes. It just seems like Zoom had a whole lot of holes that needed filling at the same moment that a massive influx of traffic came barreling in. In the meantime, these problems have been rectified by the company, according to them. And in response, Zoom has launched a bug bounty program. 
which basically is an open call to ethical hackers. If you find a bug or hack into their system, they'll pay you for it. Zoom isn't the only company to have instituted this sort of program. And although the bug bounty programs do work, it does not a complete security solution make. And by the way, if you do find a bug and get paid for it, you have to sign a non-disclosure, which means the public never finds out about it. So yeah. Well, there's two boxes ticked. Zoom bombing, check. Hacking, check. How about data privacy? This is one of the categories which generally pisses me off because it's rarely, if ever, a mistake. And this one's no different. At the end of March 2020, as the reality of schools being shut down had just begun to sink in, the attorney general of the state of New York sent Zoom a letter asking specific questions about security issues, specifically related to the privacy of children, since so many schools had turned to Zoom in an attempt to deliver assignments and engage in discussion with students. The AG also wanted more information on how Zoom was using the children's data. Who else was getting all that data? All good questions. And directly related, yet again, to that COPA law that I always seem to be on about. If you need a refresher, remember, please go back and listen to episodes five and six. In terms of COPA and Zoom, Zoom has made a statement that the responsibility for getting permission to use Zoom, meaning COPA, falls on the school, since Zoom has made it clear that no one under 18 is meant to have an account. Now, I'm going to be honest and say that I did not have enough time before recording this segment, this episode, to research their argument, but know that I will be dissecting it and will get back to you. But here are my initial thoughts, which I might be wrong about once I dig deeper. But on first blush, A, the short summarized version of the argument that Zoom is passing along permission of gathering responsibility slash liability to the school makes no sense to me because Zoom is the one initially gathering and storing data. And B, COPA is not optional. That's like saying that a liquor store isn't legally responsible for selling alcohol to minors when their parents allow it. Selling alcohol to minors is inherently illegal. So... Watch this space for an update on that. Also at the end of March 2020, I'm starting to wonder how much tequila was purchased by the UN family at the end of March 2020. Also at the end of March 2020, Motherboard, which is the tech reporting division of Vice News, figured out that Zoom's iOS or Apple app was sending data about users to Facebook, even when the user was not using Facebook. This data included when the user opened the Zoom app, their time zone, their city, meaning location, and other device details. What in the... Look, I'm going to chalk this one up to a really stupid mistake. You know when apps and websites ask you if you want to use your Facebook login to access their site? For example, you use your Facebook login credentials to log into MSNBC or CNN or whatever. Yeah, first of all, don't do that. It's stupid. You're just giving Facebook even more information about yourself. Just come up with a new username and login. Pull up your big girl panties. It'll be fine. Zoom has that option to log into the Zoom app with your Facebook login. The trouble is that the data about your activity was going to Facebook whether or not you had logged in with your Facebook account. Somebody zigged when they should have zagged. Dumb mistake, which also has been fixed. Okay. Data privacy in terms of students and COPA standards, that one remains unchecked. I'll get back to you on that one. Sharing your data with Facebook, check. What about encryption of data? When data is sent back and forth across the internet, it's meant to be scrambled or encrypted for your privacy. Certain industries have super high levels of end-to-end encryption, like banking. That means that the data is encrypted leaving your computer and encrypted on the bank side as well. Zoom has always said that they do, in fact, have end-to-end encryption, which turned out to be not true, or maybe just not 
correct. Pick your poison. Splitting those semantic hairs end up at the same place. Zoom does not offer end-to-end encryption because they've given themselves access to your videos, audio, chat content, metadata like the time, the place, the length of the meeting, the names of the participants, the email addresses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What Zoom actually offers is transport encryption, or rather encryption during the journey from one side to the other. Big difference. Why should you care? It's not like you're planning a bank heist over Zoom. Okay, don't use Zoom to plan elaborate criminal activities. Unless you're planning another Ocean's like 12, the girl version, I'll be your hacker, but only if I can wear my own combat boots to help me think. Here's why you should care. And yet another very public issue Zoom had with security. Zoom was, according to them, accidentally routing North American meetings through China. So who cares? Well, this is where the encryption thing becomes a problem. Normally, Zoom gates content by geography so that North American meetings are routed to North American servers. European meetings are routed to European servers, etc. Zoom said that the rerouting of North American meetings or calls through China was an accident which came from high traffic. In other words, once all of the North American servers were jammed with traffic, the overflow just ended up on Chinese servers. But pay attention to perhaps the finest point here. Since, as we just saw, Zoom does not have end-to-end encryption. The data from all those North American calls or meetings, which were rerouted and sent to Chinese servers, were sent along with the encryption keys. Here's the rub. Chinese citizens have zero expectation of privacy according to their government. In keeping with China's restrictive censorship practices, the Chinese government routinely mines and monitors what we would consider the private data of their citizens. Medical records, bills, social media accounts, personal emails, whatever. It's fair game for the Chinese government to go through. So looking out at this issue as a North American user, if the Zoom servers where your data ended up are physically housed in China, then China can demand that Zoom turn over the encryption keys to your content. And because the servers physically live in China, Zoom would have no choice but to comply. Zoom has since apologized again for the error. If Zoom has had so many issues, then why not just use something else? A different app, telephone, soup cans on a string. Well, first you'd have to explain to the under 20s what a telephone is, so good luck with that. As far as apps go, FaceTime works, but it's only for iOS or Apple devices. WhatsApp has a four heads up person limit. Other apps like House Party, which, good Lord, I don't even want to get started on that one. As a result of all of these Zoom security issues, in April, the New York City Department of Education has issued a statement that New York City public schools should stop using Zoom immediately and suggested using Google Meet, which is basically a freshened up version of Google Hangouts, which is another story for another day. Remember, again, that any tool that a school uses must be COPA compliant, which is a high standard. And just as we saw, Zoom may not even really be COPA compliant, just like they're really not end-to-end encrypted. So what's the bottom line? Should you or should you not use Zoom for school? I hate black and white questions because the entire world is really just shades of gray, not 50 shades of gray, the worst book ever written. So I'll answer by saying this, COPA issues notwithstanding. Your students are only as safe on Zoom as their laziest teacher. Hey, superintendents and administrators, you know those teachers on your payroll never read the emails you send them or only follow your instructions partway and then lose focus on, wait, did I tell you about the deer outside my window? Yeah, those teachers, those teachers are your biggest risk on Zoom. 
The instructions on running a safe and secure Zoom meeting are not cumbersome. They're not confusing. But they do require consistency, focus, and vigilance. Just another devilish detail. And here are just a few of the steps that teachers should take. And by the way, Zoom has created a handy guide for schools looking to implement Zoom, which you should absolutely download. And that's listed in the liner notes. So here's my list of best practices. You'll find these in the download packet I've created for fans only in the Patreon channel. Number one, do not share meeting links in a public forum. You're asking to get Zoom bombed, actually. Number two, do not use your personal meeting ID. This is a special ID that Zoom gives you, which creates a sort of never-ending link of access to your space. Anyone who has it can enter that space at any time. It's a bad idea. I can't even think of a place where it would be useful. Don't use it at all. Number three, do lock the share screen option. Once you're in the meeting, go to the bottom of the screen, fourth button from the left, share screen, click on it, and choose only host. And you can set this to be the default starting point so you don't have to do it every time. Number four, tick the box which says allow only signed in users to join. This means that if someone tries to join without first being logged into Zoom with the email that you're expecting, they'll be bounced. This prevents one student from giving a different student the join link and getting access. Five, lock the meeting. I would recommend that you tell your participants that the quote door will be locked at X time. Once the time arrives, click on the second button from the left, call participants, and click on lock the meeting. You snooze, you lose. Don't be late. Number six, no rejoining. Take the global setting that prevents tossed participants to rejoin. Seven, disable chat. If you don't want students or participants to chat with each other during the meeting, then just disable it. Go to chat in the meeting controls, then more, and you can choose chat settings. This is just another place where trolls would be able to share inappropriate content, say horrible things. Now, subset to seven, privacy. Make sure that your participants are aware if you do a chat and a loud chat that all chat messages sent within Zoom are saved, even the ones sent from one individual to another individual. This should stop most of the foolishness before it even begins. Number eight, link and password. You can and should create a random meeting ID generated by the system and require that a password be entered. Number nine, file transfers. Make sure that the ability to share files within chat is turned off in the settings in the file transfer section. Turn it on only if you need it. 10, no annotations. Turn it off. Zoom has a great annotation tool where participants can draw on the shared space which is great in a business meeting, not so great in a school setting, unless you want a bunch of terribly drawn penises on the screen. Number 11, no backgrounds. Turn off the ability for users to use custom backgrounds for all the obvious reasons. 12, most importantly, keep your software updated. Although participants are most likely connecting via a browser, meeting hosts are probably using the installed software or the app. Every single time you plan a meeting and before the meeting begins, check for updates, install them immediately. These updates contain fixes to whichever Zoom oopsie gets found next and they need to apologize for. These next few items are mine. 13. No one-to-one video meetings. Do not allow teachers or staff to meet virtually one-on-one with students unless you figure out a way to create an auditing trail. You're begging for a problem. And frankly, I've tried to come up with some ideas and they're all incomplete. If you're not sure why I'm saying this, again, please listen to episodes five and six. 
The only complete solution for this is to require that at least two students be present in any sort of office hours or additional help scenario. It's clunky, but it's necessary. Number 14, and last, please do be sensitive to a sense of invasion of privacy. Whatever facade of normalcy the average student has constructed that is believed at school, where they've smoothed over the edges of their financial inequality or familial chaos, is going to be blown to bits by the intrusion of a Zoom call. Kids are embarrassed. So the only solution to this are a few, I guess, allowing students to not turn on their cameras, allowing students to dial in via phone. Just bear in mind, not every student is willing to open up a camera into their homes. Well, here we are at the end. So let's ask the question again. Should you use Zoom for educational purposes? Well, if you aren't planning a heist and you use the settings we just discussed and you keep your software updated, then you should probably be okay. But remember, this depends on each meeting host following the guidelines. I would suggest that administrators and district tech director come up with 20 or so Zoom safety reminder, make them little graphics, cute, whatever, which you release one per week, every week to staff. When you get to the end of the list, start again at the beginning. As I've said, I've had many conversations lately around this topic of what to do about next year with many school officials. And I'd like to send out a personal message to all of these folks, regardless of where you are in the world. Superintendents and school administrators and educators and parents, here are my wishes for you. I hope that after you've formulated your best but still imperfect scheduling plan for next year, that you will find peace. I hope when what you already anticipate will go wrong does in fact go wrong, you can still be kind to yourself. I hope that the faces you carry around in your heart, you know, those particular students you worry about the most, I hope they'll be okay. I hope that all the sleep you've lost and the soul-crushing effort you're putting in will be recognized by your loudest and angriest critics. I hope you'll have the grace to recognize their anger as what it really is, fear. Fear for their children, fear for the future, fear that we will never go back to what was. I hope that while you're holding everyone else up, you have people in your life who will hold you up. I hope that the all-clear shout of Ali Ali Oxenfree comes sooner rather than later so that instead of using headphones, you'll have the privilege of hearing your students' laughter on a playground and the sunshine as it should be. Well, my friends, that's the end of our show. Remember, parenting and educating is hard. Be kind to yourself. This has been a Big Mama's House production hosted by Jesse Weinberger. The outro music was written and mastered by Caleb Weinberger.